I have a pop quiz for you this morning. I want to know who can remember what book of the Bible we've been studying together. <laughs> Matthew. Okay, good. Right. It's actually We've been studying it since December of 2017, but you might not, you could be forgiven for not remembering because we've ended up taking two long breaks from Matthew in the last two months. I think we've had two sermons from Matthew in the last two months, so... It's just been a different kind of time. We've made it to Matthew chapter 18. So if you want to open up your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 15 this morning. That's where we left off a month ago when we were in Matthew together. The last time we were in Matthew together was the last Sunday of April. And the disciples were asking Jesus which one of them was the, the G-O-A-T, the goat, right? Do you remember this? The greatest of all time in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest of all time in the kingdom of heaven? Jesus said it was this guy. He said it was the humble. He said unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus Jesus told us that we are to become like these little ones and to welcome these little ones like those pencils running around up here and to not harm these little ones and to not hate or despise these little ones because he loves the little ones. And then it was amazing because as we read it, we realized that we, his disciples, are the little ones that he's talking about. The Father loves us. And he doesn't want us to wander off and get lost. You remember that part of it at the end? The the, the section ended by Jesus telling a story about a search and rescue operation. Where a shepherd had a hundred sheep. And one of them wandered away. And the shepherd left the 99 on the hills. And he went looking for the one that had wandered off. And Jesus said that's what the heart of God is like. For wandering disciples. He said, your heavenly Father is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Does that sound kind of familiar? I know it's been a month. A lot has happened since then. But Jesus remains the same. And so does His teaching. In the next section of Matthew 18, the one we're going to look at today, Jesus continues his fourth major block of teaching in this gospel, his teaching on relationships and obedience by explaining to his disciples what they should do if another one of the disciples sins against them. If your brother sins against you. Now, I think this is intimately connected to what we just talked about. Jesus isn't just starting a brand new topic at this point. So we should expect more search and rescue here. We should expect more about wandering sheep, wandering people, wandering disciples. We were just told how the Father feels about wandering disciples. Now we're told how we're supposed to relate to them ourselves. Let me read to you verses 15 through 20. I'm planning to go all the way to the end of the chapter today, but we'll start with verses 15 through 20. These are the words of our Lord. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault 
just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven, for where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. If we didn't have this, we wouldn't know what to do. We do have it, and sometimes we still don't know what to do. But here's a sure guide. Help us to understand what it's saying, what it's teaching, what Jesus is teaching us, his disciples. And help us to see how we can apply it to our own lives today. What a gift your word is. Here it is in English, in our own heart language, the language we, sleep in, we dream in in our sleep. It was written originally, this part, in Greek. And it's been faithfully translated and kept for 2,000 years so that it reaches us today. I pray that it would reach us today. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Jesus could have said, when your brother sins against you, because it's inevitable. The church is full of sinners. There are no other kind of members. Everybody in this room is a sinner. I hope that's not a a shock to you this morning. And guess what? Sinners sin. Now, everybody who belongs to Jesus is also a saint. So we don't all have to sin all of the time. In fact, saint is our deeper and truer identity now that we are in Christ. But we still sin. I do. My wife and kids can tell you. You don't have to say amen. It's inevitable that brothers and sisters, the word translated brother here refers to both kinds of siblings, it's inevitable that brothers and sisters will sin against each other from time to time. So what should a Christian do when their Christian sibling sins against them? By the way, I love that Jesus uses family language here. I'm reading a book right now by um, Lee Eklov called Feels Like Home. And it's about the church. How the church should be and is a family. This is about sin by a member of the family of God against a member of the family of God. It's not about the world and how we relate to the world out there, even though there may be transferable principles to other kinds of conflicts. This is a family matter. One of you sinning against me, or me sinning against one of you, or somebody from this side sinning against this side. Is that why you always sit on this side because you're not getting along with the guys on this side? 
How should we handle that in this family of God? Jesus gives us five steps. Here's number one. Go and show him his fault. If it's a sister, go and show her her fault. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. So step one is a private step, right? Go and show your brother his fault. In most instances, this is a very private matter, just between the offender and the offended. If your brother sins against you, go and try to work it out, make it right. Now, this is not what the world says when this happens, right? What does the world say? If your brother or sister sins against you, go see a lawyer, right? Go tell your neighbor. Go gossip to your friends. Whatever you do, don't go to him or her. I mean, they should come to you, right? I mean, you're the one that was hurt. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, go to them. Yes, they hurt you. They sinned against you. It was a real sin, a real hurt, a real debt, a real stab. But you and I are to go and try to show them where they have gone wrong. I'll be honest, as I have gotten older... I have found this increasingly hard, harder to do. I don't like conflict. I hate it. If you have sinned against me, chances are I have run away from confronting you. At least at first. Often I say, yes, Jesus tells me to do it, and I go do it. Now, it's better in many cases if you can overlook an offense. The Proverbs say it's a glory to overlook an offense. But that means that a sin is unilaterally forgiven and it won't come between us at all. I'll just say, no biggie. If you can't overlook something, the Lord calls you to go to your spiritual sibling and try to work things out. You know, if we consistently practice step number one, we would have very few Christians ever get to step number four. If we consistently practice step number one, for example, in our marriages, we would have very few Christians ever see divorce. Not that it wouldn't happen, but it would become much more rare. But we avoid confrontation and we let offenses pile up and we wait for the other person to take the initiative and before you know it, we're bitter and we're divided. It's important how we go about showing somebody their fault too. Most of the time, we need to do it in a Galatians 6 kind of a way. Galatians 6 says, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. I think gently is important there, and watching yourself. Because often when we go, we pull out our six shooters, right? We're going to confront somebody, and we end up compounding the sin. I'm sinning against the person I'm trying to to confront. Now, there are also times when flipping over tables is appropriate. If you're watching Jesus, and it takes some wisdom to discern which times are which. The point here is that we are to go and show our brother his fault. And see see here where the goal is? Look at verse 15 again. Look at it closely. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. See, that's the goal right there. For him to listen. 
and to win your brother over. It's restoration of fellowship. It's debts forgiven, relationship restored. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. If he was a sheep, then he's been rescued, right? The wandering sheep has been grabbed and brought home. Most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, when we confront somebody poorly, we want satisfaction, not restoration. We want an apology, not a brother back. But the point of all of these steps is to get things back to where they belong. Now, if you have sinned against someone else, if you're on the other side of this equation, you aren't supposed to wait for their confrontation. Remember what Jesus said back in the Sermon on the Mount. If you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, meaning you did something to him, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. So if we're doing what Jesus says we're supposed to be doing, we should be meeting each other on the way, right? The one offended should be going to the, the offend, uh, offender and the offender should be coming to the offend e. And they should be meeting on the way. This last week, my conscience was heavy with some sins of the tongue that I had committed. And I had sinned in front of a group of Christians and really against this group of Christians. So when I was convicted, I went to the whole group and I asked for their forgiveness. And they all readily granted it, for which I'm grateful. Because we're family And we want to do whatever depends on us to maintain that family unity. Of course, this does not mean that your brother will always listen, will it? He says, if he listens. Verse 16. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's step number two. Take one or two others with you back to him. We only take it to this step if step one has failed to bring our brother back, right? If you do step one and your brother's one over, it's over. It doesn't have to go anywhere else. Nobody else even has to know about it. But if he won't listen, then we take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, that last bit sounds kind of judicial, doesn't it? It's drawn from Deuteronomy, chapter 19, verse 15. Jesus is saying there's a a case being built here against the person who has sinned that needs to be established as in fact, in evidence, in case this thing goes before the whole church. I don't think that the two or three going along is only for establishing who said what. I think the two or three going back to talk with the erring brother is a more serious attempt at winning them back. It's getting a small group involved in someone else's life and showing how seriously concerned they all are about the well-being of this brother or sister who is wandering. It's probably also to introduce more steps of help, intermediate steps of help, if the conflict needs mediation or arbitration or conciliation. Because sometimes we just can't handle conflicts on our own. We need other people in our life. Take one or two others along. Now, what does the world say when we get to this step? right? The world says, give it up, right? That's enough. Forget it. He's not worth it, right? She's a joke. 
The world says, get what you can, cut your losses, forget about that other person. But God says, go after them. Now remember, the point of going after them is not to prove you're in the right. It's to win them. It's not to gang up on them. It's to gather around them in love. Take one or two others along. But that doesn't always work. What if the sheep don't want to be rescued? The shepherd's found the sheep and it's still running away. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That's step number three and obviously it's gotten more serious. Tell it to the church. At this point, it's, gotten, it's gone beyond affecting just a small group. It threatens to affect the whole church, so the whole church needs to get involved. If a pastor or an elder was not part of your step two team, this would be the time to involve them. Tell it to the church. Now, that doesn't mean to stand up on a Sunday morning during the praise and worship time and tell everybody about your friend's behavior, right? That would be interesting, wouldn't it? I want the microphone because I want to talk about the person on the other side of the... Is that why you guys sit over here? Because you're mad at these people over here? No, it means to get church leaders involved, to meet with the principal people in the situation, to get counsel, to get a larger group of members together, to intervene, to set certain people to praying, to make it clear to the member who's trapped in the sin that this is serious business and needs to be dealt with. Now, I'll level with you. This part, when something gets to this step in this process, it is no fun whatsoever. There's been almost nothing more painful and difficult for me in pastoral ministry than leading a church through this process at this step. I don't mind getting involved at step two, but step three is so hard. Most of it is a role of a pastor or an elder to do. A difficult business that no one enjoys. If you did enjoy it, there'd be something wrong with you. But it is love. It's love to go after the wandering sheep, even if the wandering sheep doesn't want to be found. I'll tell you, I've been worried about preaching this message. Maybe why I haven't preached in a month is because I didn't want to get to this text. You think? I preached on this text 14 years ago, and we lost a family over it. I was preaching about this process, and they said, I don't want any part of that. And they left. That's hard stuff. I have not practiced this perfectly or even as consistently as I would want. And when this process is handled poorly, even more people get hurt. But if you've got one of those red letter Bibles, what color are these words? These are red words, right? Not that the whole thing isn't God's word. The whole thing is. But this is Jesus is teaching of us. This is what he commands us to do, and it is love. I want you to love me in this way. Okay? So if it's me that sinned against you and you need to take it to this level, please do. I'm saying that when I'm sane. Sin makes us insane and irrational. But when I'm at this point, I want you to come after me. I'm telling you that now, and you can remind me. I hope you never have to. This is what a loving shepherd does for wandering sheep. This is what a loving family does for the family they love. 
They seek reconciliation and restoration. Tell it to the church. It's not to shame them. It's to, it's to gain them. Remember where that word church first showed up in this book, in the Gospel of Matthew? It's when, Pete, when Jesus asked Peter the big question. Do you remember that? I know it's been a long time since we were in chapter 16. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's right, Rocky. And on this rock I will build, what did he say? My church. My messianic community. My called out gathering of people. See, the church belongs to Jesus. And now the church, belonging to Jesus, gets involved in this conflict to try to resolve it and bring reconciliation and restoration to the family. And when it works, it is glorious. I've seen this at work. And it's a glorious thing. Heather and I once went to a church where the treasurer stole over $270,000 from the church family. Darla? It wasn't this church. It wasn't Darla. They confronted this man. You know when they found it out? They were going to buy a new building. And the treasurer had to call the chairman and say, the money's not there. What do you mean the money's not there? Well, I used it. I loaned it to myself for my business, to prop up my business. I kept it all, all the records like a loan. And I'm going to, uh, I was going to repay it, but my business went under. The money's not there. I'm sorry, he says. And this church forgave him. When we went to that church, he was still there on the pew, worshiping with them every Sunday. They confronted him. They didn't treat it like it wasn't a sin. It was a sin against one brother against another. But they won their brother over. And he was there worshiping with them. They never trusted him with another dollar. <laughs> and in fact, he repaid the money over time. He made restitution. But they forgave him. And it was glorious. Of course, it doesn't always work in the sense that they don't always listen. Sometimes disciples just want to keep on sinning. So, fourth step, verse 17. You tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Treat him as an outsider. Now remember, this didn't start with telling the church. didn't start there. If sins against one another can be cared for privately, that's the way to go. And most of them can. I see this at work in our congregation all the time. I just get little glimpses. Somebody goes to somebody and say, I'm sorry I sinned against you. The other person says, I forgive you. And that's it. Sometimes they might need some help. It happens all the time. It's wonderful. The vast majority of these can be worked out. Step one, and that's it. But sometimes you get the whole church involved and they still don't want to listen. And Jesus says you treat them like a pagan, a Gentile, or a tax collector. 
Now, one of the things I love about that is, what was Matthew before he became the apostle? He was a tax collector, right? This is step four. It's often called by various names, sometimes church discipline or disfellowshipping or excommunication. Excommunication because if someone is an outsider, outside of the Christian fellowship, they shouldn't be taking the the meal of the insiders, the communion. The you here in verse 17 is singular. The church declares him or her an outsider, but each individual member needs to act that way too. If he refuses to listen to the church, the church as a whole, the church has reached out to him and tried to bring him back, but he's refused to turn, then you treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Not as an enemy, but as someone who's outside the family of God. Someone who's clearly not a believer because they're not acting like one. As someone with whom you cannot have full fellowship. Somebody outside the family. I know this brings up a host of questions and for many of us a host of feelings too. If we've been involved in any situations like this. It takes wisdom and discernment to make good decisions about what is and what is not acceptable and right. And we need to extend grace to one another as we stumble forward toward maturity. And we need to be careful to not make matters worse by doing it poorly. But the principle is very clear, isn't it? Step four is to treat them as outsiders, putting them out of the church family and treat them like they are out of the church family. Now, when the church gets to this point, the world goes ballistic, right? How cruel, how unloving. But it's really just the opposite. Because we're still trying to win them and restore them. We're trying to rescue them. We're on a search and rescue mission. The whole point is to rescue your brother or sister while maintaining the purity of the church. The drastic action of step four is meant to shock people back to their senses. It's putting them outside for their own good and for the church's purity. This is taught other places in the New Testament. Check out 1 Corinthians 5 this afternoon for another example of this process. And no one is to be exempt. Pastors like me are to be treated the exact same way, carefully, with two or three witnesses, but equally. 1 Timothy 5 says those elders who sin are to be rebuked publicly so that others may take warning. This is serious stuff and to be treated with prayer. Verse 18 says that we're doing the Lord's business when we do it. Look at verse 18. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Or you could translate that, has already been bound in heaven. It's a difficult um, uh, tense in the Greek. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven or has already been loosed in heaven. In other words, this is the Lord's business. It needs serious prayer. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it'll be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with you. There I am with them. Now, does that language sound familiar, the binding and loosing language? Have you heard that before in Matthew? Yeah, back in 16. Back when Jesus introduced the church. Jesus told Peter that he would have that kind of authority. And now we find out in chapter 18 that the church together has that kind of deep authority. And if we're doing things right and righteously, there's a symmetry between what the church does here and what God wants in heaven. Now, it's been a while since we were in the Gospel of Matthew together. But there's a principle we've been seeing over and over again as we've gone through it together. Kind of a a 
a lens that we read the Gospel of Matthew through. The Gospel of Matthew is a theological biography of Jesus Christ. So we've been saying, keep what? Anybody remember? Keep your eye on the ball, right? And what is the ball in the Gospel of Matthew? Who is Jesus? Who is he? Don't miss the claim of verse 20. We're stuck in all this binding and loosing and what does all that mean? And then, but we need to see what he says about himself. He's claiming, Jesus is claiming that when the church gathers together and prayerfully does this deep authority work of trying to bring reconciliation between disciples and restoration of sinners back into the family fellowship, where is he? Right there with him. Right there in the center. Who could do that? Who could be in all of those meetings? This is a huge claim that he's making. This guy, this Middle Eastern Jew, is claiming that he's in the middle of all these messy conflicts between believers. He's calling them to each other. He's calling them to be family. He's calling them to repentance and love. Sometimes we think verse 20 is about prayer meetings. That's where we quote verse 20, right? But it's really about congregational meetings, which hopefully are prayer meetings too, right? The congregation gathered together in the name of the Lord Jesus to do the work of the church of the Lord Jesus. And where is the Lord Jesus? Right there. Right in the middle. One more step and then we're done. What happens if your brother or sister repents. This is true at any point. Somebody said it. Forgive him. Forgive him from your heart. Look at verse 21. Peter knew that's where Jesus was heading with all of this. That's why he came and asked him the question he did in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, okay, I've heard what you just said. How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Notice the similar language. How many times my brother sins against me? Up to seven times? Now that's a lot, actually. Have you ever had somebody sin against you and you forgave them seven times? If you lived in a family, you have, right? right? Well, see, the rabbis, the leading rabbis, they said three You get like three strikes and you're out. That's what the rabbi said. So Peter's generous. He doubles that and he adds one. He gives it a perfect number. How about seven? Verse 22, Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Or it could be translated 70 times seven times. That's 490 for you math whizzes. I had to look it up. I don't think he means the 491st time it's over. He means again and again and again. Therefore, he tells a story, and here's how we'll end. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Now, in modern dollars, that is one gazillion dollars in today's money. And I'm, I'm... I'm being funny, but that's actually no joke. See, this was more money than was in all of Israel at that time. This is 20 years wages times 10,000. Okay? So take whatever you've made over the last 20 years, or what you expect to make over the next next 20, multiply that by 10,000. That's how much money this is. 
Somewhere, I, I read this week, somewhere between six and nine billion dollars in today's dollars. It's the biggest weight of currency, a talent, times the highest Greek number that they had, right? So in other words, it's a gazillion dollars. Jesus is using the highest of hyperbole to get across his point. A man owed him a gazillion dollars was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, and who could, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Would that do it? It would be some kind of justice, but it would not have ever been repaid. If he took all the money in Israel, you couldn't have repaid this. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master, (laughs) look at this, took pity on him, canceled the debt. He didn't just get it down to workable. He didn't say, okay, we'll put you on payment plans. He canceled the debt. Wow. And let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now that's, that's no small amount of money. That's a hundred days wages. That's like $14,000, something like that, depending on how much you make. It's a real debt. It was a real debt, but nothing compared to what he'd just been forgiven. This guy, he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. What? Everybody who's listening to this story is like, wait, what happened? He just got forgiven all of that and he's like, he wants his little bit of money back? His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. Exact same words that he just used with the king. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that had happened. Master, this man has obviously learned nothing. He's bitter and irrational and unforgiving and unchanged. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to? Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed, which we know would be never. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. What a story. Jesus can tell a story, can't he? Now, the point of this parable is not to explain the mechanics of how God forgives and when. The point is not to teach that we get forgiven, and then there's a test that comes along to see if we will forgive, and then God takes away our forgiveness if we fail the test. That's not what he's saying. That's not how it works, and that's not how parables work. Most of the time in parables, there isn't a one-for-one analogy between the character, for each character and each scene and each point into real life. I think instead that the message of this parable is twofold. First, that we have been forgiven a massive debt that we could never repay. Our sin is a gazillion. And second, that forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. And so Jesus is warning us that if we aren't people who forgive, then we may not yet be people that who have been forgiven. 
If someone is consumed by bitterness and unwilling to forgive their brother or sister in Christ, then it calls into question their salvation. We shouldn't give false assurance to someone like that, that they are saved. Because the grace of God transforms us to be gracious people. Disciples of Jesus forgive disciples of Jesus. That's just what we do. And we do it from the heart. Because our hearts have been changed. This is why Jesus taught us to pray like this in the disciples' prayer. Remember that from the Sermon on the Mount? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus closes with this crazy story to move us to do the opposite of it. We're supposed to see ourselves as the one who has forgiven an astronomical dollar, gazillion dollar debt to God. And then because of that, we're transformed by that forgiveness. So if a brother or a sister sins against you and then repents, what should you do? What will you do? Forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray for anybody who has had bad experiences with trying to do Matthew 18. I pray that they would receive it as the Word of God today, that you would comfort them in in the mess of the problems where it didn't go like we wanted or it was done poorly. Maybe they were hurt. Maybe they hurt somebody else. I pray that you would cover it with your grace. But I also pray that we would commit ourselves to doing as disciples what you told us to do. So that when somebody sins against them, us, we would go and show him his fault. If he doesn't listen, we take one or two others along. If it doesn't work, we tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen, then we would treat him as an outsider with grace, with compassion, loving those tax collectors, loving those Gentiles, but also not saying, yeah, you're in, you're one of us, you're a part of the family. We want you in the family. But that's not how you're acting. Lord, give us the courage to live this way. Because there's so much blessing here. Not just the blessing from, that comes from obedience, but the blessing that comes from winning the family to be the family. Lord, I pray for immediate application of this. This morning, in this room, for anybody who's estranged from anybody else in this room. I don't know that that's the case for anybody, but I pray it for Everybody that we be living this out in each other's lives. Thank you for the church. Thank you that you care about this family. And you want us. You you don't want anybody to wander off and be lost. You want us to go search and rescue them. Lord, give us hearts that are ready to forgive that we would reach out and say, I forgive you to those that have a, have, we have a debt against. To say, that debt is gone. 
I'm not going to let that stand between us and our fellowship and our familyness. Thank you for the debt you've forgiven us of. We can't imagine, we cannot fathom how great our debt is. Thank you for what Jesus did on the cross in paying for our sin. I pray for anybody here who has not yet trusted in Jesus as their Savior and received this kind of forgiveness, that they would do so today. They would tell you that they need this forgiveness and they would trust with all of their heart in what Jesus did for them on the cross and how he came back to life to give them this life that begins now and goes for all eternity. Would you do that in somebody's heart, Lord? We thank you for our love, your love, and we want to be marked by this kind of love to others. And we pray it in the name of the one who taught us these things and modeled it for us when he went to the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ.